Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thank you for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I welcome back to the show Brian Clark. Uh, Brian is Senior Fellow and Director at the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. Brian is releasing a new report entitled Hedging Bets, Rethinking Force Design for a Post-Dominance Era. Of course, Brian is no stranger to the show, nor to the AOC. Uh, he's a leading thinker on naval operations, electronic warfare, autonomous systems, and military competitions and wargaming. And this new report proposes a strategic and operational approach to affordably sustain U.S. deterrence in the face of growing challenges uh, encountering specific acts of aggression from near-peer competitors, obviously with an eye on the Pacific region. Also, Brian is going to be presenting on an upcoming AOC webinar on February 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, his topic will be uh, an update on MSO, the battle for sensing and sense making. Of course, to attend the webinars, you must be an AOC member to attend them for free. If you're not an AOC member, you can pay a small fee to, to participate. Before I bring him on, if you're a regular listener, uh, you'll notice that we released a new subscriber episode last week on January 24th. Uh, these new episodes will be two times a month on the weeks that we don't release the regular From the Crossness episodes and will only be available for subscribers. Uh, the subscription package will launch formally here in the coming weeks, uh, likely in March. So in the meantime, we will make these episodes available to everyone. But they will be going behind a paywall soon uh, when we get the subscription up and running. To become a subscriber, it'll be $2.99 a month that you can pay for via your wherever you get download your podcast. Or being a subscriber is a free benefit for becoming an AOC member. So you, if you're an AOC member, you can get the subscription for free. If you're not an AOC member, you can, you can pay $2.99 and then become a subscriber. Not only do you get access to these episodes, but you also get to participate and join us in the live recording of these episodes that take place uh, the Tuesday before the release. So you can watch, comment, ask questions, engage the guests. Um, and and each episode is really going to be geared toward uh, current events and discussing what's in the headlines. Uh, so these conversations will be much more informal, a lot of fun, and just kind of really going through and, and, and looking at what's happening in the world today and how it affects the electromagnetic warfare community. Without further delay, uh, let me welcome Brian Clark to the show. Thanks, Ken. Great to see you. And I appreciate the chance to come here and talk about the work. Yeah, I, I think I think you can now qualify as a regular guest. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is probably what your fourth time on the show. I, you're very prolific in your reports, and and so, you know, I wanted to have you back on the show for your forthcoming report here coming up in a few weeks, called "Hedging Bets: Rethinking Force Design for Post Dominance Era." Very interesting report. A lot of kind of fresh concepts in terms of how to think about reshaping our defense force uh, in this in this new time. 
Uh, so I wanted to have you on the show, talk a little bit about the report, a little bit about some of the, what inspired you or what led to you focusing on this report and what are some of the action items we can take from it, from a larger defense community. To get started, we'll just deal with the title, you know, very interesting terminology at the end of it, this post-dominance era. And that's kind of the context of the of the hedging hedge force. So talk about what is a post-dominance era that we're in today. Yeah, Ken. So uh, the the challenge that the U.S. is facing is weapons proliferation and the fact that you've got you know, U.S. forces operating as the away team in most cases puts the U.S. at kind of a disadvantage. We're used to being able to drive the terms of a confrontation in our direction. You know, we're used to having a dominant military that can basically force enemies to uh, capitulate, or we can we can drive the, the fight in a way that's advantageous to us because we usually had more capable precision strike networks. We had uh, larger numbers of forces. We had a defense posture that allowed us to be in close proximity to potential areas of conflict. Well, you know, what's happened now is you've got China with a military that is is in most ways larger than the United States and in some ways is as capable as the United States. But even more importantly, you've got uh, countries like China and Russia and even Iran who are you know, next door to the areas where there's conflict likely to occur. So they're the home team. They've got, uh, they can draw upon all of their capacity. They can draw upon the entire industrial base of their countries. They can bring all their forces to bear into one you know, conflict, whereas the U.S. has to spread its effort out across the whole globe. So what we were seeing is a transition from a time when the U.S. got to drive the terms of confrontations with its potential adversaries to where the U.S. is having to react and respond to the initiatives that their adversaries are taking. And you can see that today in what's happening in the Middle East, you know, with what Iran is doing via its proxies against Israel, against shipping in the Red Sea. You can see what's happening with Russia against Ukraine. And you can also see this in terms of how China has been bullying Taiwan as well as the Philippines. Is the U.S. in a lot of cases having to react in a situation where it doesn't have an inherent capability advantage. So we're sort of in this era now where the U.S. has to think of itself as a peer, you know, at least in terms of the forces it can bring to bear in any region, as opposed to being the dominant force in any confrontation. That kind of ties into you know, some of the previous reports that you've written on with this notion of competition. It's, it's, it's less of about being able to dictate the terms against your adversary and more just t- trying to kind of make sure you compete with them and 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 kind of frustrate their efforts enough to keep the costs down for you and up for them. Yeah. So one advantage that the U.S. has is that we're not seeking to change the status quo. You know, so we are sort of the defensive team, if you will. So on the strategic defense, all we really need to do to succeed is to foil the aggressor's efforts to try to change the status quo. So that's a lot easier, you know, lift, you know, than trying to change the status quo like we did in Iraq or even Afghanistan. So we can you know, take advantage of that and say, well, you know, what would it, what would we need to deploy, for example, into the region around Taiwan to prevent China from having a easy time of it in terms of invading the, the country? What would we need to do with Ukraine, for example, to spoil Russia's ability to invade them? And we did some of that already with what Ukraine was equipped with and how they were able to stop that invasion. And then, you know, equally, you know, what can you do to try to spoil or foil? Iran's efforts, you know, to use its proxies to disrupt shipping and disrupt economic activity in the Middle East. So we get to take advantage of the fact that as the, you know, spoiler, as the defensive team, you know, we might be able to get by with maybe a lower level of military capacity or capability in any one region. 
And so what we're looking at is in this post-dominance era, maybe we need to steer into that. You know, instead of trying to build a military that's going to be able to dominate its adversaries, let's think about a military that was able to deal with a variety of situations it's going to face, you know, because you can see right now the Iranian situation is a lot different than the Chinese situation. But then use, you know, use these hedge forces is what we talk about is as a way to hedge against the the high consequence, low probability scenarios where we need to spoil or foil an adversary's aggression. And we don't want to have to build a military optimized for just that task. We need a military that's much more like the Swiss army knife. Now, you know, in talking with the services, you know, during the course of the year, you know, a lot of times you'll hear them talk about having to pivot in terms of how they think about fighting, you know, from a, maybe a counterinsurgency to some that's more traditional force on force and so forth. It seems that, you know, when you have a pivot mentality to force concept, to force design, it's a very costly effort. And that is not what you're talking about with the hedge force, where it's you have a basic force, your main force structure, and then you have specialized ability to react to various conflicts. Is that, is, is that accurate? How, could you explain that a little bit more, better than I do here? Under this approach, you would end up having a kind of baseline military that's sort of the multi-mission, a widely versatile force that we're used to. You know, we're used to basically post-Cold War, we had you know, forces that did amphibious operations. We had forces that did strike operations, so strike fighters and bombers. And we had uh, naval forces that did you know, protection of sea lanes and, and uh, counter-piracy and things like that. So we had this sort of very versatile jack-of-all-trades military that's uh, very useful for 90% of the situations that you're going to face day to day. You can see, you know, in the Middle East, our multi-mission military is really well designed to handle the situation being presented by Iran. And, you know, usually would be good at dealing with the threat posed by Russia, especially with NATO and NATO allies. But that jack-of-all-trades military is not very well designed to deal with a short-notice invasion of Taiwan by basically the entire Chinese military. And what we're seeing is in the force planning efforts that the Pentagon's doing, they're having to try to, by prioritizing that scenario, they're driving the entire military force structure in the direction of optimizing for the China-Taiwan invasion, because we see that as a high-consequence scenario. If that happened, it would be devastating to our own interests and then the world economy. And therefore, we need to make sure that the military is able to address that. Well, because the demands for that are just so much different and so much higher than what they are for those other scenarios, they're forcing the military to, like you say, pivot and you know, reshape itself in the model that's needed for that China-Taiwan invasion, which is why you see, for example, you know, amphibious forces are deprioritized and we're buying fewer of them. We're actually pausing the, the purchase of those ships. We're deprioritizing strike air, kind of your your fourth generation strike aircraft like the F-18, the A-10 certainly, and uh, you know, even F-15s are something that the you know, military is buying, but somewhat resistantly. <laughs> so you're seeing the military pivot to this force that's you know, very much optimized for the China-Taiwan invasion, but the stuff you need for that is so much more expensive than the stuff you need for everything else that it's forcing the military to shrink also. So we're getting a smaller force that's more optimized for this one scenario and is less able to deal with all the other situations that the world might present, which is part of why you're seeing the stress, for example, on the Navy that's being generated as a result of the operations in the Middle East. And, and it would seem in this post-dominance era, the likelihood of multiple scenarios around the globe at once is very high, especially if you know China's going to wait or to initiate proxy conflicts to kind of draw our forces to, to, to thin us out in some way. So 
it's likely that you're not going to have a China scenario. It's going to be a China scenario along with a host of other opportunistic conflicts from other adversaries, either working on their own or with China. Absolutely. So you see right now there's multiple things happening in multiple theaters. If you have uh, if your military continues to shrink and optimize for the China-Taiwan fight, you're going to have less and less capacity to help bolster NATO against Russia um, to be able to you know kind of keep the Middle East under control as the conflict between Iran and Israel essentially uh, begins to expand. What our argument is in this paper is that instead of continuing to push the military to optimize for this narrow set of high consequence, low probability scenarios, we should strive to keep the military more versatile, keep our more multi-mission military, and then build separate little forces that are designed to address the particular scenarios that we find most perplexing or most challenging, like a China-Taiwan invasion on short notice. Because those scenarios are low probability enough that they shouldn't drive the entire force planning of the United States. They also are probably ones where we can take advantage of the fact that we're the spoiler in this situation. So, you know, if Russia wants to invade Ukraine, all we needed to do was help spoil that initial invasion, which you saw the Ukrainians be able to do that with U.S. assistance. Taiwan could similarly spoil the effort of the Chinese to invade it with the right kinds of forces deployed in that region. So uh, the hedge force, we argue, is something that you would add to the existing military to drive down the risk on that scenario and reduce the need for us to be able to, to optimize our military for that one scenario. Be- because your ultimate goal is to essentially, in many cases, maintain the status quo, protect Taiwan. You're not trying to defeat China. You're not trying to defeat an adversary as much as you are trying to make sure that you frustrate their plans enough to raise their risk and their cost. Right. And you can see how deterrence by punishment, you know, which is one one of the forms that we talk about canonically, uh, is either deterrence by denial or de- deterrence by punishment. Arguably, we've seen from you know, Russia, Iran, the Houthis, everybody, punishment, the threat of punishment does not seem to deter anybody anymore. And then arguably, if it comes to China, the threat of denial is really hard for us to mount because to really deny China the ability to invade Taiwan, you know, we would have to be able to defeat every ship that China could throw across the Taiwan Strait, which there's that's really not feasible. But what we can do is we can make that invasion, as you said, uh, challenging enough, you know, fraud enough uh, that it might become protracted. It might the losses might get very high. The war will not go nearly as well as planned, and that could be a problem for the Chinese leadership. So the goal here with these hedge forces is not to create a hedge force that's going to somehow magically stop you know, an invasion in this case completely. But what it will do is make the, the invasion so problematic that it will deter China from pursuing it because they see the likelihood of success is lower. The likelihood of a protracted, messy, costly uh, invasion is higher. Maybe we need to rethink whether invasion is the top priority in terms of scenarios or we need to go a different direction. So you know, that the success of a hedge force like that would be uh, driving China to pursue other scenarios like a blockade or a quarantine or, you know, something less damaging. Arguably, that's that's the direction we want the, US, the Chinese uh, to go, is to, to move away from invasion and move towards less violent paths to reunification down to the point where hopefully China just pursues a diplomatic or economic approach. So you mentioned the the notion of how probabilities play into this. You know, the China is a low probability, high consequence. How do we determine the probability of a potential conflict in such an unstable era that we have? You know, there's some people that would say, well, you know, 
China's the, the probability is going to shift. It's going to be higher probability later on or early, you know, at different times. So how do you factor in probabilities? How do you determine them? And how does that then play into how you address it from, with a hedge force perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. So that goes back to the previous study that you're referring to, which is the one we did on dissuasion, you know, for DARPA uh, last year. And we talked about in there, it's maybe not as much about the pro- probability, like a specific number associated with a, a scenario, but it's just where does it stack rank in terms of what the Chinese leadership thinks of as their best paths to their objective. So in this case, if the objective is unification with Taiwan, what's the you know number one scenario if they have to pull the trigger that they're going to want to pursue? You know, invasion is probably not the highest one uh, because it's messy, it's uncertain. There's lots of ways it can go wrong. So probably the current you know path they're on, which is you know economic pressure and you know diplomatic pressure and cyber attacks, those are probably at the top. And then probably the next one down is something like a quarantine, which you've already seen them starting to do like a soft quarantine at times of Taiwan, and then maybe blockade, and then maybe invasion is you know several down the list. So what yeah you know, we're trying to do is essentially drive that even further down so that invasion becomes a less and less um, attractive scenario for the Chinese and other scenarios become you know, more attractive. One reason why I would I would argue that invasion is continuing to go down in, in probability is the recent revelations that you know China had the corruption in China has gotten to the point where you know she is now unsure as whether the missiles that are uh, being deployed as part of the rocket force even have fuel in them as opposed to water and if even if they even work because some of the testing appears to have been you know fraudulent and also there's a lot of uh, kickbacks and and corruption happening so now there's this concern within the PLA well uh, some of our you know, uh, crown jewel capabilities even useful or workable. So all those things are going to undermine the confidence of the Chinese in that scenario of like the quick turn, you know, short notice invasion. So what that means is, so if, if that probability of invasion is going down, it means, well, can we come up with a cost-effective way to hedge against that scenario to make sure that we're not completely, you know, uh, unprepared, but make it so that we're not having to read fashion the entire U.S. military to address something that is dropping in priority for the Chinese. And and I would imagine China's probably learned some lessons from watching Ukraine and, and Russia's efforts where, you know, prior to this war going on, you know, it was kind of commonly held that it would be a quick one, a quick effort, quick war. You know, the, Russia has, was far advanced. They were, they had greater capability. They had a better, you know, they had a plan, et cetera. And then all of a sudden now we're almost, what, two years into it where, not gone according to plan. So the, the 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 political impact of that, that's something that China wants to avoid. So they have to make sure exactly what they have and what they can do. So I, I would imagine that plays into the probability dropping down as well. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, I think in the US, if you, you know, this probability going down, that's certainly something people should take solace in, you know, that they may, okay, this means an invasion is not as imminent as people might've been arguing, but it also means, okay, well, we should be rethinking our force design. How much do we need to retool the military to deal with this one scenario if it's even less likely than it was before? Because arguably boiling the U.S. military down to the core capabilities that are most useful to defeat an invasion on short notice, you know, submarines, stealthy bombers, stealthy aircraft, long-range strike missiles. Those are not as useful for the kind of blockade or quarantine scenarios that China's more likely to present. So we'd be building a military that's almost orthogonal to the direction that the Chinese are likely to go.
Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Well, I was going to say that, that it almost adds a layer of complication to your response as well, because if the lower that probability gets, the more options China has to do other things that you have to respond to. You have, a, have to have a range of response to. Right. And you, you might even encourage them to pursue those other scenarios, which, you know, you, you seem less or our military would seem less prepared for. So you're right. You may inadvertently, you know, even you know, drive in the direction of one of these things like a blockade by optimizing for the for the uh, invasion scenario. You know, what this hedge force would be designed to do then is is essentially thwart the invasion. So kind of do like Ukraine did in that in the first you know, weeks of the invasion um, there, where they stopped the advance into Kiev, 
they stopped and then started to turn back the advance in the east and the south. So that initial sort of counterattack that the Ukrainians were able to mount is reflective of this kind of idea of a hedge force where they used precision weapons being provided by the U.S. They used commercial ISR and communication networks. You know, they knitted together unmanned systems. You know, they put together this, you know, system of systems that was able to to spoil, you know, that that ability for the Russians, in this case, to get a quick victory. So in the China-Taiwan case, we want to pursue a similar approach. But in this case, you know, the, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people that argue that Taiwan should become a porcupine and should equip its military with, you know, just, you know, anti-ship cruise missiles and short range, you know, air defenses and basically stand by, you know, to basically, you know, stop an invasion. The problem with that, though, is that just like the U.S., if Taiwan optimizes its defense for countering an invasion of troops across the beach, that military is not very well suited to deal with a blockade or a quarantine. And they'd be utterly dependent upon the U.S. and its allies to come in and help, even on a small blockade, because they wouldn't have the military forces to deal with it. So it sort of sets Taiwan up for this situation where they could be really pressured in the gray zone. Yeah. So China could simply dial up the gray zone, maritime militia blockade activities. And unless the U.S. wanted to get involved directly, um, they might have a free hand because Taiwan wouldn't have a Navy that was really able to deal with that threat. So, yeah, we don't want to optimize the the Taiwanese military either for this kind of uh, island invasion scenario. So the argument we make is the U.S. should be providing these capabilities for the hedge force and not force Taiwan to retool its own military to do that. So the hedge force is going to end up being the kinds of things that you'd think would be effective against a large number of incoming amphibious ships. Well, that, that's what I wanted to ask, you know, like, could you paint a picture of what a, what makes up the hedge force? Because when you talk, you have a baseline force, you're not talking about F-22s or any, like any major, you're, what are the attributes of that hedge force that you basically plug on top of, or in addition to your baseline force? What does that look like? It'd be the kind of forces that would be expendable in that invasion scenario, right? So it'd be unmanned surface vessels with uh, loitering munitions and short-range anti-ship missiles. Uh, it would be unmanned undersea vehicles that act essentially as mobile mines to engage uh, incoming amphibious ships, right? So the amphibious fleet is coming toward Taiwan. So you've got basically one axis of the threat. All you need to do is get in the way of that threat axis um, and begin sinking or damaging or disabling ships, and you would slow down and, and make the invasion you know much more protracted. And you know, that would include you know, mines uh, as well. And it would include you know, short-range air defenses to protect the hedge force, uh, independent of what's happening with the Taiwanese military. And then you, know, you would see the same kinds of things you see in uh, Ukraine, which is uh, lethal U- USVs, so unmanned surface vessels, drone boats with warheads or explosives built into them. You'd see you know, long-range or medium-range, I guess in this case, uh, UAVs that would carry munitions or warheads themselves, sort of like the Shahed 136s that you know, the Russians are using, the Altius you know, 700 and some of these other UAVs would be able to keep, be weaponized in a similar fashion. So those units, you know, those, those unmanned systems, you know, would be operated, you know, as a group to attack the amphibious force. What makes that easy is that the amphibious force is coming from essentially one direction, coming towards you know a couple of main landing areas that are viable you know to land on in Taiwan, um, and also there shouldn't be any merchant shipping or friendly you know, ships in the area. So you essentially can have kill boxes uh, between basically the midline between China and Taiwan in the water and the Taiwanese coast. 
and just call that you know, a free fire area. So these unmanned systems would be able to engage any targets they find in that area. And you know, some of those attacks may not be able to sink you know, a large amphibious ship or a troop transport, but they may disable it. And they would certainly slow down the pace you know, of the invasion and, and the potential offload of troops. The bigger impact might even be on preventing those ships from going back, right? So a ship that gets disabled and disgorges its troops into onto Taiwan um, needs to go back and get the next load. Well, if it's been disabled because it was sitting there, you know, letting its troops off while it was being attacked with unmanned surface vessels, now that's one more ship that can't make that return voyage. So by the end of it, you should have you know a limited number of troops getting to shore, you know, a lot of ships unable to return to China, and then China's left with the choice of, well, do I bring civilian vessels out? Do I bring the ferries out? Do I bring all these other ships out to try to provide that second wave, which is going to be even more challenging? Um, or do I you know, try to seek an off-ramp? The hedge force would be you know, all these unmanned systems with relatively simple automation, and they would be positioned on Taiwan, or they could be positioned in northern Luzon, or they could be posi positioned in the Japanese uh, Southwest Islands, so the Sakashima Islands. Because you know, any amphibious invasion is probably going to give you at least a you know, one day of warning, right? Because it takes some time to move everything into position, and then it takes 10 hours approximately to make the transit. So you know, we should be able to move these hedge forces from the Sakashimas or from Luzon within a day, and then have them in position before the amphibious forces arrive. So when, when we're talking building this concept out, are, are you proposing that you know, when you have, you have a baseline military force, are you talking about maybe demarcating what capabilities would fall into the hedge force portion of the military and what falls into the baseline so that based on the scenario, you say, okay, we need these type of capabilities from the hedge force group, like building them out separately, or is there, are these scenario unique hedge forces that you build out? So these would be regionally specific and, and largely scenario specific hedge forces. So they would be built separately and equipped separately from the mainline U.S. military. So you, we would argue that we should set up a joint task force to manage the hedge force for Taiwan, for example. So um, that force would be equipped. You know, they'd have program managers. They would have funding provided to them. They would be able to go buy both equipment as well as services to help do like the software integration of these systems. And then they would be able to sustain that over time. Yeah, that's different than, yeah, I think what most people would argue, which is, well, I need to put these into the mainline military and then I'll assemble the hedge force. Because if uh, if you do that approach, you're not necessarily going to have the hedge force where you need it when you need it, right? Because you're dependent upon the services to bring that to their components and have that all done through the joint, uh, basically the global force management process, you know, which is not going to be responsive enough. So with the joint task force cons uh, effort, how does that interact with the combatant commands as well as the, ser the the services that are providing still man training equipping, uh, how does how does that uh, change that equation? Yeah, so we would we we were arguing in the paper that um, the joint task force commander would work for the combatant commander of that region. So this would be an extension of that combatant commander's operational responsibilities, and you know the procurement arm, for example, would work with the J eight of the combatant commander. The operations arm would work with the J three of the combatant commander. So this would be part of the combatant commander's organization, but it would have its own funding lines, you know, provided by Congress through the PPP process, and then the service services um, would send people to that joint task force just like they do today to joint task forces, right? So joint task force HOA in uh, Djibouti, you know, gets its 
it's funded by the Navy and operated, you know, mostly by the Navy, but uh, it is uh, provided people in joint billets to do, you know, staff jobs. And so the same problem, same thing here where you'd have the staff associated with this JTF coming from the services, you know, on some rotational basis. And then you'd have, you know, similarly, you'd have civilians too, because you need program managers, you need acquisition professionals to support you know, the, the sustainment and operate or kind of equipping and the sustainment of the hedge force. Um, so those people will be provided, you know, via, you know, the Pentagon's, you know, civilian uh, manpower processes. So let's talk funding a little bit. Everybody's favorite topic, budgeting for defense. Uh, it's, it's, you know, become annually now. It's uh, becoming a little bit more difficult each year to actually understand what we're, you know, how we're paying for, for everything in, in the defense sector. We don't have a 24 defense budget yet. We do have an NDAA. You, what you're proposing, I mean, you have a, a couple great uh, charts in the report that sh- show how expensive the force has become and how the efforts to shrink that force, divest to invest kind of efforts to shrink the force a little bit, but it's still very expensive. So how does this effort improve the possibility of being able to have an affordable defense force for any scenario that comes up? Great point. So in terms of the funding, what we argue is that um, this effort would be funded as part of the deterrence initiative for that theater. So there's the European deterrence initiative. There's specific deterrence initiative. Those are created by Congress. Those are buckets that you know are kind of, of funding that but go to specific PE line items that are controlled by the services still. But at least it's a it's a way of collecting together you know a set of funding lines that are associated with a particular operation. So here we would say, you know, the hedge force for Taiwan would be part of the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. There'd it'd be its own little page on the uh, Pacific Deterrence Initiative, you know, budget exhibits. And then the line items would be going, you know, to mostly, you know, DOD level organizations that are going to support the procurement and the sustainment. But there may be some service lines that go in there, too, to support some of the logistics and, you know, and then personnel uh, elements of it. So the funding, we think, should be could be pretty well organized without having to do anything to the PPB. You know, this is within the existing PPB. Uh, the amount of money we're talking about, so we we argued that the, the hedge force that we proposed in the in the paper was about $6 billion to build it all out, including the the personnel and the sustainment and the equipping. You know, it was obviously a significant amount of money, but then would be, you know, somewhat additive to the existing force. Um, but we think this would be a worthwhile investment, you know, that Congress might even add to the you know defense budget in order to get this hedge built in to address this high consequence scenario then over time you know what i what would we argue this would do is free up the pentagon's force planning process to now not optimize for that one scenario but now to look at how the force could be des- you know designed or evolved to better address the range of scenarios facing it which might allow you to actually reduce spending in some other areas so for example if you have this hedge force to help burn down the risk associated with a China-Taiwan invasion, um, does that mean we can get away with perhaps a smaller buy of F-35s? You know, because maybe the F-35 is a key player in that scenario, and we don't need as many of them if we're going to you know, have this hedge force in place. Do we you know get away with um, you know maybe investments in some of the longer-range weapons? You know that are really expensive, maybe we can get by with fewer of those because, again, you know, the hedge force is going to burn down risk in that scenario. So the argument we make is by not having a hedge force, we're skewing the military to really be able to deal with this high consequence, low probability scenario. With a hedge force, you can take that scenario you know, out of the 
top priority bucket and then say, okay, well, given the other scenarios we want to plan against, what do we need? And you probably, we would find, I can guarantee you, that we can save some money because now we don't have to necessarily buy as good as equipment as we're hoping to buy uh, or as many of them. Um, another good example might be DDGX, right? The Navy's new DDG is predicted to be about twice as expensive as the current DDG, the destroyer. That destroyer is designed mostly to be able to operate inside this really high threat environment to counter a China Taiwan invasion. If that is no longer the scenario that drives our force planning, then that ship can probably be designed to be a more versatile platform, you know, that's able to operate a lot of places and it might be a lot less expensive. When you talk about uh, you, you put the price, the, the rough price, price tag around six billion, and that's for the China specific, the regional hedge force, but you could, the DOD could, in theory, have multiple hedge force concepts that it could, you know, for CENTCOM or whatever. Right. And so what, and, you know, one way to think about it is if you look at your military force and ask, you know, which of these force elements are designed or primarily to address one particular scenario or one narrow collection of scenarios. And there are some force elements that really are driven by that. And if those scenarios are no longer as high a priority, does that free us up from having to make necessarily that investment? You know, you could see perhaps even in the submarine force, you know, the submarine of the future, the SSNX, uh, is going to again be like twice as expensive as its predecessor. That submarine is designed in large part to deal with the China Taiwan scenario. So if that we have another way to deal with that, and at least lower the risk on it. Does that free up the design space for that submarine to be less expensive? And then also, you know, for like the you know the Air Force's uh, tanker fleet, you could think about the tanker fleet stress is driven a lot by the need to maintain a lot of aircraft, you know, over Taiwan to support air defense of Taiwan during an invasion, does that tanker fleet now have less stress on it? Because that scenario maybe is not a big a driver of force planning. So I'd see as we go into the future, the ability to use hedge forces to burn down the risk on edge case scenarios, high probability or low probability, high consequence scenarios, starts to free up the design space for the force and you're able to buy maybe smaller numbers or, or less capable stuff. So you mentioned earlier that the, the hedge force initiative, they would have their program managers saying, here's what we need to fund. The The funding that goes into, are those programs of record through their current structure and they're just identified as what is necessary for the hedge force? So the money might go into hedge force, but it would still go back into the program record or would they manage the actual program through development? So the program would probably be managed by you know a combination of these managers in the field and then their leadership back in the organizations they come from. So it probably we're talking about DIU and SCO, so Defense Innovation Unit, Strategic Capabilities Office, or a couple of the organizations that you know would be well suited to support this effort. And the idea would be not getting bogged down into creating big programs of record for these systems because they're going to need to evolve, right? We're going to find that the first instantiation of the hedge forest, for example, for Taiwan, you know, may work for based on how we ex- understand the situation now, but China will develop new capabilities. China will try to re- react to the hedge force and create different ways to defeat it. And we'll have to change out pieces of the hedge force. So th- that approach could be you know more flexible by using like middle tier of acquisition and using prototyping or competitive prototyping to be able to find the right set of things that seem to meet the current need, buy those in an, uh, at scale you know enough to be able to support the hedge force. And then you'll know, be ready to pivot to the next thing, you know, as China reacts to what we've done. 
So that's going to basically keep you in the middle tier of acquisition and competitive prototyping, which is, you know, still within the DoD 5000. That's still, you know, an approach we can take. And, and Dave Tremper at AI2 has talked about that. But it allows you to, you know, operate much more flexibly in terms of evolving your force than we can do today if we were to manage this from the PEOs back in, the, in you know, the services. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, you, a lot of your reports touch on electronic warfare. Um, I would imagine as you're writing this report, electromagnetic warfare capabilities play a big role into any hedge force that you're going to design. Could you talk a little bit about how your concept might affect how we pursue EW priorities, either, you know, fielding of them or the, you know, the program growth of those? Yeah. One of the problems that the challenges that DOD has right now in fielding new capabilities in EW is um, a lot of the direction of the future in EW, we think, is going to be very distributed, you know, electromagnetic warfare systems, a lot of unmanned systems, you know, employing jamming and decoy capabilities. You know, so much more of a, I don't say swarm, but basically a much more distributed unmanned set of capabilities doing electronic warfare in the future compared to like the monolithic platform of today or in the post-Cold War. So Compass Call, Rivet Joint, Growler, you know, is kind of our premier offensive electronic warfare systems, and then basically everybody having their own self-protection EW system. But that was all organized around this idea of like manned platforms being the unit of issue of the U.S. military. So as we go into the future, we need to kind of disaggregate that and get a lot more of those electronic warfare capabilities on smaller unmanned things that we can send forward into these high threat environments. That's hard to do because the you know, military once feels like they got to protect those manned platforms. And so the EW investment continues to be focused on self-protection for the most part. And even, you know, the offensive systems like the EC-37, where we're replacing Compass Call with another manned platform. So that's consuming the bulk of the resources. And it's hard to make this shift to a more distributed EW architecture. Well, the hedge force can help help us do that because if we're talking about thwarting active aggression by an adversary, one good way to do that is disrupt his communications, disrupt his sensing, uh, confuse him as to the disposition of you know friendly our friendly forces, and uh, use that to also improve the survivability of our weapons and make our weapons more lethal. So there's lots of ways that EW are part of this hedge force, and because the hedge force is designed you know up from the ground up to be expendable, unmanned, very distributed. We can field these capabilities now at enough scale to where people can see the value and they can start to see that, okay, I can see how a group of unmanned aerial vehicles or you know, launched effects carrying decoys and jammers can actually confuse an enemy's uh, sensors and allow loitering munitions to be able to hit targets and have effects as opposed to having to only shoot jasms to kill a target. I can use a smaller loitering munition and hit the target in the right place because I've confused its air defenses sufficiently that it can't shoot down all the loitering munitions. So EW is a huge component of this, but I think the, the bigger value in the hedge force is it can get the capabilities into the field or into deployed at scale that demonstrate this new approach. Do you think that the hedge forces could then help continue or help expedite the breakdown of some of the stovepipes between intelligence community and operations community and so forth. Because if you're dealing with a force that has to rapidly respond to a number of different scenarios in a region, you can't continue to have those stovepipes between intel and ops and, you know, warfare. So do you think the hedge force helps with that? Absolutely. So I think, yeah, by and by pushing this to the combatant commander, that's one of the values of having the hedge force be managed uh, by the combatant commander is 
they inherently have access to all those communities simultaneously. So it creates this inherently joint, but more importantly, inherently you know, cross Intel ops and capability development lanes. So you're able to bring them all together at this one focal point. And when we try to do that from the kind of push side, if you will, from the, if we try to make the Pentagon do that integration better, just in general for just general programs, it's hard to make that happen because there's people don't see the value in it. You know, they just kind of see there's their, their rice bowl being you know, broken. But if you go into the field and say, well, no, the thing we're trying to solve is this particular problem. You know, we got to figure out a way to stop these, the invasion at an affordable cost, you know, and also do it, you know, effectively. So you got this operational problem to solve and it gives everybody a focus point to be able to say, okay, I'm going to break down these stovepipes because it's for this purpose and it's bound, you know, kind of, it's not in general, we're not giving up the Intel community as a community overall, we're just creating ways for the Intel community, the ops community, and the capability development community to all work together to solve this particular problem. So providing a solution they're trying to work toward is a much more effective way to break those barriers down than to try to do it back at the Pentagon as, as a more generalized approach. How could, you know, sh- shifting gears from, from that to, to alliances and partnerships, obviously our partnerships around the world are extremely important you know, NATO and, and whatever partnership in the, in the, we develop in the Pacific region. How does the hedge force concept affect our ability to have relationships with allies and in terms of training and preparation and their contribution to that hedge force? Yeah. So we're actually, as it turns out, we're doing studies for the Japan uh, Navy and for the Australia Defense Force, looking at this hedge force idea um, in their context as well, because they face similar challenges, right? They have, they have relatively small militaries they're adjacent to China, they're closer than we are, and they have to figure out ways to defend their own territory while also contributing to alliance operations. And I think the Hedge Force provides an interesting way to, to have that collaboration because, you know, the Hedge Force is managed by, you know, a single organization, this Joint Force Commander. In this case, you, different countries can contribute to the capabilities that they're developing. Um, Australia, in particular, has a very strong unmanned system, you know, development community. Japan is pursuing a variety of, you know, command and control systems and sensing systems on its own. So there's ways for that, for allies to be able to contribute to the hedge force in ways they really couldn't contribute to the mainline U.S. military, right? It's Australia is not going to build necessarily a, a strike fighter that we're going to buy, but uh, they do build a lot of unmanned surface vessels and unmanned uh, undersea and aerial vehicles that we might buy. Same with Japan. Yeah, so I think there's opportunities for them to contribute the he- to our hedge forces that are being fielded for you know whatever our scenarios are. So in this case, Taiwan. But also they could build their own hedge forces. And those are opportunities where their own domestic you know, defense industry can directly support their military in a way that they really can't. I mean, they're always dependent upon you know outside support to build kind of the big stuff, the ships, the aircraft. But these hedge forces are something they can do internally. I would imagine that you'd have to set up a structure where the hedge forces could train with one another. Like, for example, if if Australia has its own hedge force for that particular region and we have ours, would there have to be a different type of training scenario that you'd have to set up to make sure that they work together? So what I would argue is that the the hedge force for Taiwan would be uh, a single hedge force that's managed by one country. And so if there's contributions that are coming from from Japan or um, or Taiwan or Australia to the uh, to the the Taiwan hedge force, they would just be brought in under the U.S. program, right? So the U.S. would buy those systems and bring them in, and you'd have you know you'd have coalition partners that are on the staff. So it'd be operated like any other U.S. joint task force, or in this case, combined force, where 
it's under the leadership of a U.S. team, and then you've got some subordinate people within that that are coming from other other allies. Now, for the Japan and uh, and Australia hedge forces, they might be oriented towards different operational problems, right? So, you know, the Australian concern might be how do I defend the northern approaches to Australia from China when most of my military might be off doing an operation with the United States or focused elsewhere. Um, the Japan's got a similar problem if there's a China Taiwan fight, Japan's going to focus most of its military towards the South and Southwest, um, leaving potentially the northern part of Japan, you know, the Hokkaido and, and uh, that area up there, less defended. So they, they might want a hedge force that's focused on the defense of northern Japan. So there's the, I think the hedge forces that each country would field would be very much focused on their particular high consequence, low probability scenarios. For us, it happens to be Taiwan, but for Australia and Japan, it's probably something else. Obviously, this is, this is, quite a different way of thinking about building out a force and being prepared for a conflict. What are some of the measures of effectiveness that we'd have to implement to make sure that, yeah, we're on the right track. We're actually doing this, implementing this vision the right way. So we did some we did some modeling simulation that's in this report to, to just evaluate how well a hedge force would change the results, you know, the outcomes uh, in theater. And what we found is, you know, pretty much anywhere you slice it. <laughs> if you take the mainline U.S. military with the kind of high-end, long-range strike capabilities that we've got, and you add the hedge force to that, you get dramatically improved results, right? So you you make the likelihood that, that China gets a lodgment on Taiwan nearly zero. You reduce the number of U.S. forces that are lost in the course of the campaign, and you increase the number of Chinese forces that are lost. What's interesting is that if you look at an alternative of say, well, let's just grow the existing U.S. military. So we'll just figure out a way to buy a bunch more you know, ships, stealth bombers, stealth fighters, strike weapons, and see how that plays out. And it turns out that that, that of course, you know, reduces the likelihood that China succeeds, but actually it increases the losses. So you end up losing more because you created more targets, right? So you've now got a larger set of U.S. losses and a slightly reduced likelihood of success for China. So you end up with the hedge force actually reducing U.S. losses and increasing risk to China because the hedge force is almost entirely unmanned. So it gets expended in the course of its operation without any losses to U.S. forces because it's by design. So, so we found in that, you know, there's a lot of ways to analyze it, but pretty much every modeling run we've done on this, and from what we've heard in DOD, it's consistent with what they find inside DOD, is that this, this approach ends up driving down losses, increasing likelihood of red failing. But then, and then in terms of measure effectiveness, I think the other measure of effectiveness is that after you've implemented this, you know, maybe through that next budget cycle, start to evaluate where you might be able to lower, you know, investment, lower the spending on some of the, you know, kind of gold-plated capabilities that we were building to pursue the, you know, to address the scenario that we're addressing with the hedge force. And I think that's where you get the other measure of effectiveness is how much money are you able to move out of those big programs and then shift towards, you know, other investments to, you know, make the force more versatile and greater capacity and less stressed. One more question as as we're running out of time, and I, I don't understand how our interviews, our, our, our shows with you, Brian, like they, it, the time just flies by. And so I know we're running short on time, but one more question, you know, just to kind of wrap everything up. What is the next step? Uh, you know, it's a great report. You know, what, you know, you have a, a you know, Congress, you know, dealing with its annual budget matters. DOD is obviously on it, has its plans. What is the first step Congress and DOD need to make to bring something like this into fruition? 
So we're we're pushing within the the DoD to you know to uh, adopt this you know, approach to forest planning, and and uh, there's some traction there. I mean, there's some interest on the part of DoD forest planners and in, in looking at a different approach because they kind of recognize that the path we're on ends in a cul-de-sac, right? We get to a point where we just can't stop the invasion anymore, but we've optimized our force for it, so we can't really do anything else. So we're going to continue to do that, but I think the more important effort is going to be working with uh, the Hill, trying to get legislation into this coming NDAA that drives the DOD to lay this out, to say, okay, we're going to take, you know, we're going to look at this alternative approach and do some analysis and figure out if there's value there and what the potential value might be. You know, for example, the replicator initiative has a lot of, uh, you know, the same DNA as what we're talking about here. So the replicator initiative, which is a process, really should be driving towards developing something like the hedge force. And then the last thing we're doing is we're doing a series of war games this year with uh, Australia, Japan and the United States, uh, where we're going to be looking at hedge forces and, and using hedge forces to deal with China related scenarios in the Western Pacific. So those war games will happen this spring, in the summer and then in the fall. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, that's all the time that we have for today. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and, and talking to us about the report. And again, the report will be available on the Hudson Institute website here in probably a few weeks. But uh, in the meantime, you know, go to the website. They can reach out to you with any questions and uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks a lot, Ken. It was great to be here. Appreciate it. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Brian Clark, for joining me once again. Also, don't forget to sign up for Brian's upcoming AOC webinar. On February 22nd, you can learn more at crows.org. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.